cold open standoff is who will yeah first. exactly we're staring at each other who goes first <laughs> <laughs> but now i think you were talking about how you're you're a bad co-host so yeah i was talking about how i was a bad co-host because i didn't i didn't get to reading the book for this week because my life has been a mess for the last month but that's okay it's all right no i was saying that i want to I, I do want to read it because i read schopenhauer's essays and aphorisms recently he was in the like huh. you know that german western europe era of like philosophy and metaphysics and he was like a, a very just like a very condescending person and he basically for his era he thought the only three philosophical texts worth reading were plato kant and the upanishads which wow is, it's an interesting combination <laughs> yeah so he was basically like nothing else in philosophy is worth it it's just these three and then everything that i've written uh, <laughs> <laughs> sounds like him and taleb would get along <laughs> yeah i think so I, I think they definitely would <laughs> what was schopenhauer's era so and he his his main piece was the world is will and representation which he published in like 1808 or something. Yeah, so slightly after Kant and then before the more modern people. Today is the Upanishads, which is why uh Schopenhauer's praise is so relevant. Yeah, I I I feel like there were a couple concepts I understood and then like 99 concepts that I didn't understand or that like went over my head and it's probably one of those books. I mean, it's not a long book, but it's probably one of those books like a lot of other religious texts that, you know, that you read probably multiple times and like pick up different things each time. But I think like, I mean, number one thing that stood out to me was how monotheistic it was uh, compared yeah. to how, and, and this is something like, I don't know. I feel like the, this is, again, like humans drawing boundaries where there probably don't need to be boundaries. But this whole like monotheistic, polytheistic thing, it's like it probably started with like Europeans coming to India and seeing the different like statues of the different gods. I mean, like, oh, they have many gods. They're polytheistic without actually seeing like the underneath part of like it's all different manifestations of like the same thing. Is that a is that a Western misunderstanding of Hinduism? I think I mean, I think so. I think okay. so. I mean, I think also, but because of that, a lot of Indian people also misinterpret or Hindus misinterpret that about their own religion too. Like, I think the base level, and this is probably true about pagan religions too. Like at the base level, it is actually helpful to have the different representations because you can just be like, oh, this is the God of fire. Like, this is the God of money. This is the God of luck. Like this is, you know, and like Romans had that, the Greeks had that and probably for thousands of years before those civilizations, even it was kind of similar. Like this is the God of the sun. It's like very easy for everyone to understand. So it's very accessible. But I think like the, like the deeper philosophical part that was in the Upanishads is like actually correct, but I don't think it's well understood. Let's put it that way. I would say maybe 90% of people wouldn't know it, even if they're Hindu, but like a priest would know it for sure. Okay. Uh, sorry. When you say, when you say it, you oh, mean, that it's that it's like the 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 different gods are not different gods in, in and of themselves necessarily, like distinct entities. I mean, that was basically the core theme of the Upanishads, from what I got from it. Yeah, I I wrote down like five main takeaways, but the big one for me was that there is only one god in Hinduism, which I I had never yeah never heard that before, and it was quite surprising. 
That part felt very different from the Gita. At least as I remember, it's been a Although few the years Gita felt more it, philosophical than this also. This was definitely more... Yeah, like, more of a story. Yeah. And more like practical yeah. as well. Like the, that was more like, here's how to go about your life and take action True. and stuff. This felt yeah. more... It's also philosophical, I guess, but it's like more spiritual, theoretical. Like, I mean, it's not even just that there was one God. It's like that there's one thing like in the universe. Mm-hmm. That reminded me of the Abrahamic uh, in the image of God. Yeah. Yep. Because the way they describe it, it was like everyone has a piece of the divine. I know like the translation probably is very lossy and actually something interesting. So we read the penguin translation by Juan Mascaro, I think. Yep. And the impression I got, I actually didn't look it up, is that Mascaro was probably a Christian because so many of the annotations were... This is very similar to the Gospels, where da 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 da. So maybe I might be over-indexed mm. on, on it for that reason, uh, because oh, that like was, the translation was done that way. Either the translation was done that way, or yeah, because of his own experience. Uh, let me check real quick to see if this is actually true. I thought his intro was really good, actually. I, I really liked him. Yeah, the introduction I really yeah. enjoyed. Yeah, mm, it doesn't say whether he was of a religion himself, so maybe I'm just speculating wildly there but but yeah the everyone's connection to god everyone having a piece of god reminded me of in the image of god yeah because that's the basis for so many like good and bad you know deeds and actions both the upanishads was a little less prescriptive i think on like good and bad actions it was like there is a right path but it didn't enumerate too many things about what was on the right path besides like leaving worldly desire behind yeah. But it seemed like that everyone's the divinity in everybody was a core piece of what made something good or bad. Yeah, and that it's almost like beyond good and bad was one of the other things that was kind of hmm. talked about in one of the sections. I think it was near the maybe the second to last one. Yeah, the other I don't know, the other thing that like it made you just like consider, which was interesting, not even like made you think about because I, I I was gonna go with that, but then I was like, I I don't even think i was smart enough to think about like actually have real (laughs) thoughts about this but it just like books like this kind of make you reconsider or like at least wonder about like where we actually are like what we're like have you ever heard about this receiver idea like i feel like it's come up in a past episode before where it's like your consciousness oh like the consciousness yeah Yeah. like your conscious your body is like a receiver of your consciousness and not mm-hmm. like consciousness doesn't live within your body necessarily. Like you're almost like a radio or like a machine that's being remote operated or something. Like that's I haven't what your heard body this before. Is. Can you, what's the context for this? Where is it from? I don't know where it's from. I just have heard okay. it or maybe seen it in like various places, but it's like a, I mean, it's kind of like a philosophical idea because it kind of yeah. like it practically doesn't change anything. It will just, but, the reason it, yeah. I was curious where it came from is it sounds like, a non-religious way of basically saying your body receives the soul and the soul is separate yeah, from the body. Yeah, that's where I was... Well, that's basically where yeah. I was going with it. That this whole like yeah. at- Atman idea of like your soul or like, you know, the like everybody having a piece of the divine. It's like, are you all... every Is every single person ba- and everything on in the universe basically just like like God's play, play thing? Like just trying... God trying to like amuse himself, like entertain himself. Yeah, I mean that's a uh, that's not like a novel philosophical idea, but that's yeah. it's like a curious thing. Like if we all are pieces of the same thing entity, it's like then what's mm-hmm. the point 
Like, what? Why do we all exist? Have you Have you read that Andy Weir short story, The Egg? Oh, you've told so me to read good. it like seven times. I haven't read it yet. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I always think of when I think of this topic. What is the what, What's like the broad strokes of it? The, the premise is basically what we're talking about right now. Oh, is wow. this a spoiler? I don't think it's a spoiler. I think it gets introduced kind of early on. Or maybe it doesn't. Whatever. If you if you're wondering sure you don't hear spoilers, idea. skip yeah. ahead. Yeah. It is the concluding idea. Okay. Yeah. Well, basically that when you die, you like you get reborn as another person yes. in the universe. Yeah. And so everyone in the universe is you just at a different period in your life. That's such and a wild means, idea. It's, yeah, what it means yeah. to be like, I guess they don't call it enlightened, but to reach that next stage is to have lived every life. It's yeah. Good, it's good read. It's good. It's a good yeah. old story. Yeah. He's so yeah. good. He is so good. <laughs> I can't wait for the uh, Hail Mary movie to come out. It's going to be great. When's it coming out? I probably next year. We got some good sci-fi coming out. We got three body problem <sighs> coming out. Three body problems going to be so good. When Did is that coming Silo? out? Which one? Three body problems like January, I think. Okay. Hmm. Which one are you talking about? silo it's on apple tv right now no those books are really good wool shift and dust it's a trilogy they're they're fantastic and the new series silo is based on those books but i haven't watched it yet wasn't there something else you were watching on like prime that was another sci-fi it was like a mar something with like mars and earth that war or is it a book you were reading uh yeah, The Expanse. The Expanse. I think that was it. Yeah, I haven't watched the show, but I've read the first book. Okay, maybe you're it's reading the book. very fun. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's such a cool concept, too. That's like, you know, different idea, obviously, than what we were talking about just now. But it's like such an interesting idea of like, it, it, it will happen. Like, if there was a Mars colony, like, they would definitely have tension with the Earth. And I could 100% see, like... There being some kind of conflict. Yeah, it's like yeah. a new world, the, like new world type, old uh, new world versus old world situation. Mm-hmm. Be like a colony Revolution. at first, and then they'd be like, "No, we're not. We're not feeding Earth with our all these precious minerals and stuff. Like we're staying on our own." They'd have to like figure out how to eat. That would be probably the biggest, you know, some terraforming type thing. I haven't read yeah, the book. Yeah. I'm just speculating. I feel like Earth <laughs> has a slight advantage in this battle. Yeah. <laughs> So you can breathe the air. Yeah. <laughs> Although I would say, okay, the counterpoint would be that in the new world versus old world, the old world countries, like the European countries, could have said, well, I think the new world will struggle because we make all the guns, like in Europe. Fair. Things can change. We'll find out. <laughs> We're a long way from that. That's not happening in our lifetime. <laughs> Having an atmosphere is pretty nice. Uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. So, Adil, what else was on your on your list of five ideas, if that was one? So, I'll just go through a few of them, and then whatever's interesting we can dive into if you guys also noticed it. So, the first one was that it was a monotheistic text. The second was that Everyone has that connection to God, sort of the Abrahamic equivalent that we talked about. The third one was that the world is an illusion, uh, which is like very, very similar to the Abrahamic texts to the point that, let me see if I can find one of these quotes, fools dwelling in ignorance, yet imagining themselves wise and learned go round and round in crooked ways like the bl blind led by the blind, which I think that the blind led by the blind is actually a phrase in the gospels. 
<laughs> I wonder if that was a translator just like pulling that out though. Well, that's kind of these are these are some of the things that led me to thinking that you know either he was Christian or was around so many Christian ideas that uh, they kind of found its way into the translation. That's such a yeah. I feel like that about a lot of these historical texts. Yeah, they say that with Plato a lot, right? Like, weren't weren't a lot of the early translations of Plato to basically make him into an early Christian philosopher? There's something to this. I've heard something like this as well. It's like he was the first Christian before Christianity. Yeah. Yeah. I actually don't think I've ever read any Plato. Unless we've done done one for the episode, for an episode on that. Yeah. I've read some of it. It's, It's not as easy as like the Stoic stuff. Yeah. I mean, Stoic mm-hmm. stuff is like so easy. Yeah, Plato's forms were reconceptualized by Christians as divine ideas, which internalized them into God, meaning that they didn't have a separate and independent existence apart from God. So, yeah, I, I think the interpretations were basically arguing that like Plato was poking at the ideas of Christianity, but hmm. because he was before Christ and the Gospels and stuff, he didn't have like the full form of it, but he was like, I don't know, starting to identify with it. I'm out of my depth here. Yeah. yeah. There's definitely this theme of like Western translators, even if it's not happening here, Western translators like reinterpreting old religious or philosophical texts to confirm the like dominant thoughts of the day. Right. I think that's even if it's not done on purpose, it's just human nature too. Like, it's just ideas you're connected to. Like, it's really hard to translate certain, like, a phrase from one language to another. Like, everything's kind of an approximation for the most part. So, then they're probably just connecting the ideas and also probably also kind of thinking about their audience a little bit. Being like, oh, what will they understand? Hmm. Like, you know, there's probably a... But it makes you really think about these historical texts because there's such a game of telephone that they've gone through. Like over the years. Yeah, too. <laughs> like if it shifts like 0.5% every time, like probably 2,000 years later, you have a completely different text. Yeah. Yeah, because this was five 600 BCE, right? Wow. Yeah. So, it's, I mean, they, they definitely had writing, but it, it must have changed quite a bit over the years. <laughs> It blows my mind a little bit, actually. That yeah, that we still have this. <laughs> that we have it, and also that we actually have no idea of what we're reading is the original or close to the original or within striking distance of the original, even. Yeah. We're just like, yeah, like this is today's conception of Plato in English. Like, yeah. Godspeed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Because it's like, we know it's that old, but the oldest version of it we probably have has got to be from what like the Arab scholars in the early thousands or something, or like, I can't imagine we have something much oh. older than that. Right. I have no idea. It's why, why question. the Arab scholars? Like would this, be well, they just preserved a lot. Weren't, weren't when, they the ones who preserved everything after like Alexandria and whatnot? Hmm. So like, yeah, we basically wouldn't have any of this stuff if not for like the middle Eastern scholars in that era, as I understand it. That's anyway. what I had seen as well. well. Do they have a list of books that, we know we're in the library of Alexandria that have been preserved. Like that'd be a really cool series that have, or have not been, have been, have been, mm. have not would be yeah. a pretty tall order. I mean, everything in the ancient Greek 
and Roman. Um, oh, they were all just in there. Yeah, but they're they're obviously also outside of there too, yeah. right? There's also some like speaking of these translations. There's also some something Adil. I don't know if you noticed in the book they talked about mm-hmm. something called soma. Hmm. Are you? Did you? Notice that they, they just mentioned the word a few times. I'm putting a link I in just, the chat just to the Wikipedia page. Yeah. It's crazy because they don't know what the drink was. They just say it's like the extract of certain plants and like there's it's definitely psychedelic, but they don't not know necessarily what plant it's talking about, but it's all throughout these like old Hindu texts. Interesting. Well, we did we, we did that uh we talked about that with psychedelic mushrooms, right? Well, this because was definitely this it, definitely had some kind of mushrooms in it. They just don't know which exact mushroom it was. Well, the I feel like we talked about this at some point. The, the argument think, was one of the arguments was that um, it it was probably like a psilocybin mushroom because it grows in cow dung, right? Which might so explain the, the reverence of the cow yep. in mm-hmm. uh, Hindu culture. Yeah, like yep. I don't know if that theory actually is true, but I like it. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. The the other one I feel like we talked about at some point was it, it could have been like a fermented honey. Yeah. Hmm. Well, so I think on Wikipedia, at least the speculation is that it's probably a blend of fermented honey, mushrooms, like psychedelic mushrooms, potentially yeah. cannabis because it also grows in that region. And like just cool. this mixed of all these things, mix of all these things. That would, I mean, it's like twisted to another level. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Getting high, drunk, and on mushrooms at the same time. Can do that That's, for the next episode. <laughs> we have a religious experience for sure. I tuned out for a second trying to find a quote, and I just like snap back in with what Neil was saying. <laughs> <laughs> Don't even contextualize that. It's fine. <laughs> HR alarm bells start going off. <laughs> uh, one of the other things that stood out to me was, I'm trying to find the, I just found the quote. What name can man give to God? How can the infinite be bound by any finite word? All that language express can express must be finite since it itself is finite. Yet it is very difficult for mortals to think or speak of anything without calling it by a definite name. This reminded me of like, you know, in Islam, you have like the 99 names of God. It's like, you just can't like call a God anything that would capture God. In what is word. this concept oh. from Islam? The there's like 99 names for God, so like captures like uh properties of God without trying to like fully encapsulate oh, God, okay, is my okay. understanding of it at least. I, I could be wrong about that. Um, but this reminded me of that. But what was interesting here was instead of like a whole you know set of names that capture properties of God, for example, uh, instead it was knowing this, the sages gave to the supreme the name AUM, which stands as the root of all language. The first letter A is the mother sound, being the natural sound uttered by every creature when the throat is opened, and no sound can be made without opening the throat. The last letter M, spoken by closing the lips, terminates all articulation. As one carries the sound from the throat to the lips, it passes through the sound U. So I guess AUM is the way you say it. And these three sounds therefore cover the whole field of possible articulate sound. So it's like Hmm. finite. It's infinite captured in like a finite sound. Hmm. It's like symbolic, basically. Yeah. Symbolic. I thought it was very interesting the way it yeah. described the mother sound and 
like everybody listening is doing what I'm doing. Yeah, <laughs> trying to do. <laughs> um. I, I definitely sat there for like a minute while reading this, going like that. Yeah, yeah. Like, is this right? <laughs> uh. Also, there's speaking of Plato, there's something interesting on the uh, Upanishads Wikipedia page about there was a lot of parallels between the philosophy of Plato and the Upanishads. Like there's like a whole section hmm. on the Wikipedia page about that. There's a lot of overlap in general with like the ancient Greek Roman philosophers and Eastern mythology. I feel like that topic's come up a bunch. Yeah. 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 They were saying that um, it's there's like kind of three theories. There's one theory that Indian philosophers visited Athens and met Socrates, which is interesting. Then another theory is that Plato encountered the ideas while while in exile in Syracuse. And then the other theory is that Persia was kind of the mixing point, which Hmm. would also make sense because it was also a very major civilization. Interesting. And right in the middle. How big was Persia in that, like the Persian empire? I feel like, wasn't it basically the whole Middle East? Probably. Let's see. Ancient Persian Empire. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's like everything. Wow. Yeah. Basically, Hmm. the parts they didn't have were like the true deserts. They probably didn't want them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. From Libya all the way to Central Asia up to Greece. Basically, all the way to India. Yeah. They probably didn't want to go down into Arabia. Mm. I mean, that area is pretty barren, right? Yeah, it's like now people want want to go there because of oil, but like it's not, <laughs> yeah. it wasn't really, one, it was probably there wasn't much of a reward to going there. And then two, it probably also wasn't easy to be in that territory. Like, well, yeah, I mean, if you, if you look at how much this is centered around these major rivers and throughways, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. It's like if you can have the Persian Gulf, the Mediterranean, Tigris and Euphrates, right? Like the Nile. You don't get much else? Yeah, you got the Nile. Yeah, you're pretty good. It's also insane when you look at these ancient maps. Like, how did they maintain these empires? I mean, it's not like you even had any way of communicating quickly, like at all. Like they probably had great decentralized command. I bet <laughs> they had yeah, to. There must have been. Because you couldn't, like, communicate with the central, like, government in any way, like, if something was happening. I wonder how much of this is, like, a modern conception of borders projected backwards inaccurately. Like, if I live in, like, a town in Central Asia and, like, one empire rolls in, they're like, you're mine now. I'm like, yeah. okay, like, that's fine. I was going yeah, okay, to pay cool. taxes every year anyway. Some guy on a horse yep. is going to come take my money. Yeah. And yeah. this year it's a different guy. Um, but otherwise my life doesn't <laughs> change. I good... keep my local traditions and my religion and whatever. That's such a good Because a lot point. of the more stable empires, I, a couple of years ago, a couple of friends and I did like, uh, we each chose one empire and we went like deep on it. So I did the, uh, Roman empire. One of them did the Ottomans and the last guy did the Mongols. And when they were in their most stable period was usually when they imposed as little as possible on like the faraway kingdoms, they were just mm. taxing them. At which point it's like, well, it, it must be comp- more comparable to being part of the UN than it is to being part of the US. Yeah. Was my was my speculation as a armchair. There, there probably wasn't a strong, cohesive culture the way yeah. we would imagine like a yeah. empire today. But I would imagine that's probably only true for the fringe locales. Like if you were, I don't know, in Istanbul, you probably felt it quite a bit <laughs> when there was a yeah. change in power. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was probably like uh, central, like the closer you were to the capital or the central government, probably the more you felt it. Which I guess is kind of true here too. If you live in DC, you feel it a lot more than if you live in Bend, Oregon, right? Yeah. yeah. Although I guess if you live in California, it's pretty tied to DC, like similar to DC, <laughs> a bit more. Also, well, yeah. I mean, if you live in California, you're just afraid for your life. Yeah. So. <laughs> the, uh, the Persian Empire had collapsed before the Upanishads, is what it seems like. I just did a quick. Oh, really? Okay. They didn't. Yeah. So Persian Empire ended around 330 BCE, and the Upanishads are somewhere in the. Oh, so it was after. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Second millennium BCE. My bad. Yeah. Yeah. But they didn't overlap either way. Um, but they would have been able to be transported by the Persians. So, Like it was already written by the time of the Persian Empire, basically. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right? I, yeah. I misread this. I misread it's also, this. It's also the timelines are insane. You know, these these empires were around for like hundreds of years or like a thousand years. And it's just like, oh, yeah, it was like the second millennium BC. It's like, it's, you like, it's so easy to wave off. And we're like, a millennium ago yeah, yeah. was you know, 1000, the year 1023. (laughs) Things have changed. changed. The most mind blowing one of this was something like Cleopatra was like closer to the pyramid was equivalent from like the construction of the pyramids as she is to us today or something like that. She she was closer to the moon landing than the pyramids. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. That's the one that I've heard. Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> that's Super nuts. Wild. The one, that's the, one yeah. the one I saw more recently was like she's closer to the invention of crypto than uh the pyramids. <laughs> well, once the 40-year gap probably then the invention moon. of hieroglyphics. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. Uh, man. I mean, hieroglyphics preceded the pyramids, so it's even yeah, more ancient mm. than that. Yeah, it's kind of crazy that ancient Egypt was ancient Egypt by the time of ancient Egypt. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, living like living in the U.S. in particular, like the oldest thing in Austin is like a hundred years old, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> Imagine walking around and there's a two thousand year old, I know, like building next to you. Well, uh, I was walking around region. yesterday and I saw the Teddy Roosevelt birthplace. I totally didn't realize that was just like hanging out on a street. In oh Manhattan. yeah, that is cool. Yeah, but I mean, that's not even that old. I mean, Teddy Roosevelt was like a hundred years ago. <laughs> Wait, that was in Manhattan? Yeah, dude. It was like on 22nd? What? 21st Street? Yeah. The way the photo was framed, it looked like you were, you know, you know those like national park buildings? Yeah, yeah. It is is actually a national park building. It is actually a national park building. It's like considered Uh, a historical. Like you can go in. I didn't go in, but uh, I don't think it was open at that time. But like if you go during certain hours, it's like an actual, I think it's run by the park service. Okay, I see. I'm sort of yeah. disappointed that he was born in Manhattan. Like that just feels wrong. He should have been born in a bear cave or something. <laughs> no, the Rings corollary here world. is if somebody is born in Manhattan, it's the equivalent of being born in a bear cave. <laughs> <laughs> no, but he was really like upper yeah, class, right? That's it was the that, aforementioned San Francisco. Was it? Yeah, that's the future. <laughs> that's true. And like in the future, it's going to be like he was born in San Francisco. <laughs> He then went on to wrestle sharks and bears. (laughs) (laughs) He said he'd rather be doing that than walking down, walking it in the tenderloin. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Hopscotch over needles. (laughs) I was there last week. It's really, really bad. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually really sad. It's like for such a wealthy place, it should be something very solvable. But I just, 
you just get the impression that they don't care. The thing that I always feel about so for yeah. U.S. cities in general is that it's usually not as bad as what the media makes it out to be. Like New York, I feel like looks a lot worse in the news than it actually is day to day walking around. I feel like the mm-hmm. same is true about most U.S. cities. But I haven't been to San Francisco in years, but everything I've heard and everybody I know who's gone there has said it is not exaggerated. It's it's not exaggerated for the few square miles where it's happening, but when you yeah. look at like San Francisco as a forty nine square mile city, it's like you know forty two of those are incredible, and if you stay in those, you won't notice or feel anything. But the other seven are really bad. I mean, the same is true for L A. Right? Like hmm. L A. I just think it's Skid Row. I think is a little harder to encounter than in the way it is with the Tenderloin in San Francisco. Yeah. How is Austin, Nat? I've heard mixed things. From people, like, I mean, it's recently. a lot better than it was. Yeah, like oh, it's gotten better. When, okay, yeah, I mean, it, and I think like it, it depends a lot on when you moved here, mm. right? Like it, it was best back in twenty, like eighteen or like fifteen, sixteen when I first moved here. Like you didn't really feel it at all, and then early COVID. Maybe this was before, like during COVID, they like allowed the urban camping. Oh yeah, and then it got really bad. I mean, it was it was like freaky to go to certain parts of the city because there were just so many tents. Like, you know, there were basically mm-hmm. like mini like little colonies in the city. There's a lot more crime and stuff that came with that. And then they banned the camping again and it got a lot better. I mean, there's still mm-hmm. like a, you know, some amount of homelessness downtown. It doesn't feel like New York, I think actually does a really exceptional job of this, right? Like the New York, not, it's not just like, I don't think banning camp, like then people just move, but then they have to live that way somewhere else. Right. It's like, I think New York does a pretty yeah, job yeah. with housing. Yeah, no, that's what I was saying is New York has done a really good job of like, you don't really feel the homelessness, I think, in New York, the way you feel it, like definitely compared to SF in Austin, you feel it a little bit in certain parts of the weather, but I like in New York in general, like for part of the year versus Austin. Mm, I mean, although it's super hot in Austin, but it's, you're not going to freeze. I also just don't go downtown. Yeah. And if you're not downtown, you don't really feel it. Like, and there, there's also a difference too with like Austin because there's some parts of the city near downtown that are still quite poor. And so some of it is just like that there are the housing projects next door to multi-million dollar houses. Hmm. Right. And so that's going to like create weird neighborhoods, but that's like obviously different from the actual like homelessness drug problem downtown but that that's gotten it's still not great but it's gotten quite a bit better than it was a couple years ago i talked to this guy in sf who worked for whatever the city government like division was that was tasked with handling homelessness and he spoke very highly of like because new york has a few rules around like you have a right to shelter and things of that sort so they actually provide quite a bit more housing for folks who are homeless whereas I I don't know of any equivalent, at least when I talked to him in like 2016 that existed in SF. But something I saw recently, I think this was in the news yesterday. I just sent it to you guys in our our text group. The Hawaiian governor declared a state of emergency around uh, NIMBYism. And it's basically just like, we're getting rid of a ton of the regulations that block building new housing pretty badass that's, that's pretty like good, he, yeah. it is an emergency so it's very fitting that he's I using that. the state of emergency <laughs> but yeah the median house is a million dollars in hawaii which i guess hawaii has a bit of a different problem it's like it's only so much yeah. land wow median yeah. i heard once that hawaii has like a weird homelessness problem because a lot of people 
like try to move there to like get into surfing or Hmm. that kind of lifestyle and then sort of get stuck. So it's like, it's a different kind of homelessness. I don't know how much that's actually a thing. This is just pure Hmm. conjecture, but but that, that idea of just like suspending zoning laws and seeing what happens. Like that's a good experiment. More people should be writing that because apparently why housing is so much more affordable in Japan. Hmm. There's basically no zoning laws in major cities. So if you want to like, build 10 stories tall, fill it with apartments and then put, you know, stores on the first floor in the middle of a neighborhood like you can. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know how true this is, but I did read something about this once where they were talking about like the way that housing is kind of pitched or sold in the US versus how it's pitched in Japan. Like in Japan, it's viewed as a depreciating asset. Like you Mm, buy a house and it gets lower in value. It's not an investment. Whereas in the US, I... Partially, I think part of the reason all these rules exist is like, imagine if you bought a house and it's like $500,000, let's say, and then, you know, they start allowing all this building and then the value goes down to 200000 because there's so much more supply. Like the lobby of homeowners is probably just so hard to fight because there's just so many homeowners. Yeah. In the news in California, while I was there last week was there was a like small protest in Milbrae because they were going to turn a hotel into like 100 units for folks who are homeless. And Mm. people were protesting that. It was a lot around what you were just saying, Neil, where it was like concern, the questions that were being asked of the city official were largely around like defending like the value of their property and and things of that nature. Like if we have like 100 homeless folks in our neighborhood, how is that going to affect property values in our neighborhood? And uh, yeah, it's pretty shit. Uh, Newsom should take notes from the Hawaiian guy. It's worth an experiment. Yeah. I have, there's another there's another version of this. Are you guys familiar with, I think it's called Georgism? Georgism? No. no. One sec. Let me make sure I'm using the right term. While you look that up, though, the, the thing with California that makes it less excusable is there's just so much space. That's true. Like, you could just yeah. concoct all these new cities and, like, grow cities. With the exception of San Francisco, pretty much all the cities have the some space yeah. that they can expand into towards Central California. It's like, just build, dude. So the the idea of Georgism is that there should only be one tax and it should be a land use tax. Hmm. So the idea is like, you know, space is basically the main finite resource that people should be like paying taxes on. And if they want to use their money for like other things, that's fine. But the amount of like space you're using up basically should determine how much tax you pay and housing shouldn't necessarily be like your main form of investing because that's what leads to a lot of these like homelessness and like density issues. And it creates like poor incentives around innovation and things like that. It's kind of interesting. I'm not explaining it very well. There's a good Slate Star Codex piece about it. And I remember finding that like decently compelling when I read it. Yeah, it just creates this weird dynamic against experimentation because it's like if you're the person who lowers everyone's property values by 50% because you've completely allowed building, it's like people won't be too happy about that. Yeah, it's like even if that's great for society, you're probably not winning re-election. No. Even though it's on your way out. Like, well, exactly. Well, Yeah. yeah, okay. So it's like one of those things where it's like people will say, yeah, like we want to solve this problem, but it's like 
how much do you want to like? Do you want to solve this problem by uh, your house going down in value sixty percent? Probably you're, you're probably okay with the problem, actually. That's literally what it is in California. Is everyone's like, well, why don't you yeah. just do it in uh, Palo Alto? Why don't you do it in Millbury? Why don't you do it? <laughs> just do it somewhere else. Uh, we support it, just not here. Yeah, not right. in my backyard. <laughs> not in right. my backyard. State of emergency for Yimbyism, though, is an awesome title for that article. Yeah, I'll throw it in the notes. Yeah, I wonder how it'll go. That's like the cool thing about the U.S. I think we talked about this previously. Mm-hmm. Like, you can have all these little experiments going on. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Trying to find a quote to pull us back into the Upanishads that is somehow related. <laughs> oh, yeah. So exactly somehow <laughs> related to this. <laughs> it was really, I, I think I told this to you guys. Will uh, made a transcript of one of our Made You Think episodes and fed it to ChatGPT. Chat was like, summarize this episode of Made You Think, like pull out the main themes, give me like a one sentence summary, and then give me like a detailed summary of each like 25 minute piece of the episode something like that. And uh, GPT is just like, <laughs> these guys are all over the place. <laughs> it, it didn't literally say that, but it was like, they GPT discuss, quit. yeah, they discuss Teddy Roosevelt, <laughs> H1Bs, uh, like malaria, oat milk. Like <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, when I posted our hundredth episode, I did get a bunch of cop. Like I think at the hundredth episode, I made a comment about how there are all these tangents in it, like appropriately. And uh, yeah. I got a bunch of responses being like, I honestly wouldn't listen to this podcast if it wasn't for the tangents. <laughs> like they were like, People that's like what makes it, makes it unique. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> made you tangent. <laughs> made you tangent. <laughs> Adil, before you, you hopped on, uh, I was telling Nat, it's like, we've done a couple books recently that were, like this one and the one before, which were like easy reads, but also very difficult reads because hmm. they were about everything and nothing. That's kind of how I at least felt Upanishads was like, it is probably about everything, but it's also like very hard to grasp. Like yeah. there's nothing solid to hold on to. And that's why like the right stuff has been such a breath of fresh air because <laughs> it's the first book I've been reading in a, in a while since the Rose- Teddy Roosevelt one, actually, that I'm like, I don't know. I'm like so hooked in it. I'm excited for like that Upanishads. One. I've had, I've had with me, I've been like traveling around for the last month and a half a bit and I've been bringing it with me every place I go. And I didn't finish it till like last night at midnight. Oh really? Um, and it's I a had... short book. Yeah. It's it a short, short book. I have no excuse for doing that except that I kept look like it wasn't a book that you instinctively want to pick up. Meanwhile, yeah. last week when I started the right stuff, I've just been picking it up every chance I get. It's like, <laughs> oh, I have 15 minutes right now. I'm just going to read like a few more pages of the right stuff. I think I've just been in like a existential headspace. So I was, I had the opposite experience. I was like in this book, I was like rereading parts of it. The other thing that I've enjoyed is since we've now read, we read Tao Te Ching, we read, did we read Analyx together or did I read that separately? Mm-hmm. I think we read oh, that we together. Did. Yeah, yeah, we, we did that, that together. together. Yep. Yep. Now this. And then, you know, separately, I've been reading the Abrahamic texts. Like the number of parallels and like similar ideas and motifs are like very high. And so like, for example, another one that stood out to me in the Upanishads was he who longs for God, him the Lord chooses. Uh, where it's like, mm. and there's like similar ideas again in the Abrahamic texts. Like, I think it's in Islam. It's like, if you like walk to God, God will run to you. Hmm. And it's just like these texts are now like, you know, a couple thousand years apart, but it's a very similar concept of, and another one uh, in the Upanishads that I appreciate it was like, good action is not, is the only way to achieve Atman. Knowledge is not enough where it's like, 
if you know this and you don't act, it's actually worse than not knowing, right? Because then mm-hmm. it's sort of this indifference. You're like, okay, so you've been told what God expects of you. And then you just went like, okay, cool. Like, nice to know. Yeah. There's, a, yeah. there's a great meme. We can throw it in the notes. It's, there's like two frames. In the top one, it's like what I expected to feel like after I found religion. And it's like a guy who's like exploding with light and looks really pleased. And, uh, but it's like what I actually felt after finding religion. It's a dog wearing a party cap looking really upset. And it's like, <laughs> I, I need and the captions. Like I need to fix every way I've been living my life. That's <laughs> uh, <laughs> sort of what like, you know, good action is the only way to achieve Atman reminded me of, but I, I got a lot out of, out of this. Like, and it was because it was quick. It was very easy to go back and dip back into certain pieces. To go back to it. Yeah. What are your thoughts on if these ideas were developed independently and they like converged around the same ideas or yeah, I guess that's like, so not converged is not the right word. They were independently developed, meaning there's some kind of like human truth to it. Yeah. Uh, or is it like a mix, a mixing of civilizations? I think time? you can make my speculation on this as a armchair. Interesting speculation. Person. Yeah. Is, and what I've seen, just because like having read more of the religious texts myself, I've started talking to more people about it. So I have a few more opinions to latch mine against. People who are very secular, their reaction generally is, well, these are like human concerns. So people always struggle with like interest and wealth and like lack of charitableness and, you know, sexual like impulses and things of that nature. And those who get too deep into it struggle and they kind of get disconnected from the world. So the thrust of, uh, religious text then becomes combating those evils with like the like the power of God as the accountability mechanism. That'll be like the secular uh, explanation. And then the religious explanation will be, no, there is one truth and it just appears in different places because it is everywhere. And like you might call masses. it by a different, exactly. You might call it by a different name, but it's actually the same thing. Another form in which I've encountered this is people will be like, oh, all the religions are the same, which is why they're wrong. And other people will be like, all the religions are the same, which is why they're right. Yeah. I think at, at that point, it's like, what do you believe at 3 a.m. at night? Right. Since you could kind of twist each argument each way. Yeah. One one thing that I felt was actually very, like, again, this is, I mean, different people have different opinions on this, but like the idea of, there was a section, uh, you might remember exactly which one, but there's a section about how the Atman is not, like it's not male or female. It's not a warrior or a poet. Like it's like, it's, it doesn't have any of the labels attached to it. Mm-hmm. And it's actually a really interesting idea because like, when you think about it, I don't know. It's like all these things are just like labels that we put on like your actual, I mean, it depends on if you believe in a soul or like something beyond the body. But if you do believe in that, or you believe that the body is kind of like, independent like your mind and body are not the same even though i go back and forth on that all the time where it's like your body like your body is in some ways like more than or sorry your personality is more than just your brain like it's partially your body as well so anyway this you could talk about this for hours but the idea is really interesting like when you actually sit and kind of meditate on that idea a little bit it's like you do realize over your lifetime you build up all these labels on top of yourself that aren't actually real they're just mm-hmm. kind of like labels that you either are applying or society is applying on you. 
I mean, I guess like the male female one is by like a biological label, but other labels like career related labels or like things like you're an American. Like, yeah, that's that's true, but it's also not really hmm. tr- like it's not a quality that your bot, you know, your soul has necessarily. It's like a it's like a personality trait, maybe the American personality that's like conditioned into you. But yeah, it's just like a really interesting idea that how you're like not a lot of these things that you call yourself are not actually inherent to you. They're just like things. They're like different masks, basically. We also live in kind of an interesting time for these kinds of like, you know, spiritual conversations because it's like hyper rationalistic and there's a really good Simon Sarris essay. It's, uh, I, I remember the subtitle. All of them are like, good, though. They in are praise of the gods. In praise of the gods. Yeah, what the rationalistic world forgot. And it's not actually like arguing necessarily for a religion or a religion. It's more just we've like taken rationalism too far to the point of it's almost like inhuman and like some amount of intuition is necessary. And I I believe that quite a bit. But we've made it so hokey. You just mm. it's you can't really talk about it unless you like determine your counterparty is up for it. Right. Otherwise, they're going to look at you like yeah. nuts. They're going to be like, okay, cool. I'm glad that's working out for you. <laughs> but if you're like, talking to someone who has been doing it themselves, then it's, it's very interesting. Because um, yeah. they'll have like language for you that you might not have. It is interesting that it does feel like there, there's this other book, Straw Dogs by John Gray. And one of the things he talks about oh, in yeah. it. I watched your video about that. It's, it's such a good book. One of the things he talks about, though, is that like, society has become so secular that the like rebellious thing to do will be to become religious again. <laughs> I think and so. it, it kind of feels like that's starting to happen now. Yeah. Right. Like it, 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 in the sense of, I feel like our parents' generation moved very aggressively away from like a religiously influenced society for like you know, various reasons they were repulsed by it. And now we grew up seeing all of the like downsides of that. And it feels like our generation and maybe even more so like the, the next generation after us, like Gen Z's, there is this like strong undercurrent back towards some kind of religion in life. And there's like, it seems like there are more churches kind of catering to that too. Like I, I have a theory I, on this. I think what repulsed the our parents' generation was a lot of the cultural baggage and like cultural norms around a specific yeah. method of worship or community. So they left it and essentially cleansed the cultural piece. So someone mm-hmm. who wants to uh, re-engage with the religion can only really read the text because they have no connection to the community. If you grew up in like yeah. a very atheist household, for example, or a very secular non-religious household which means you're actually almost getting a purified form you're getting like this core Mm. piece i I know many people will argue that the community and the cultural norms are one with the religion i personally don't actually fully believe that i don't agree with that either yeah yeah Yeah. but it is it is the same thing it is a popular view but yeah so that's why i think it's a little different for folks who are coming back they're not actually coming back to the same thing no, no. And I, I was going to say, I feel like there are institutions that are appealing to that, like non-denominational Christian churches, right? Or yeah. there, there's something here I haven't looked too close. This is probably more of a national thing called like the Life Church, hmm. right? And I think it's it's similar similar concept of like respecting the text and the ideas without, again, that some of the more like modern interpretation cultural baggage that goes on top of it. So yeah, it's it's 
it's been interesting to see yeah. that like that that shift is clearly happening. Not to mention, have you guys seen any of this like Andrew Tate stuff and like young guys getting into Islam? Oof, that's a bad channel no, for really? that. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I haven't looked at it too closely. Not, I just know that it's a thing. Not an entry right? point like, I'm fond of. What is it? <laughs> I, I know, I know. I, I I don't know that much about it. I just know that it's it's. Wait, is he Muslim? I think so. Yeah, I think he's Muslim. Oh, okay, he doesn't really act um, like it. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's, he's maybe not the best brand ambassador but <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> yeah. but like like saying uh saying like inshallah right has become kind of a a meme too amongst like young guys in particular i have i, I have noticed like that. the same force yeah but it's just interesting right like i can't I, imagine that being a thing amongst us at like 14 it's very hard to imagine <laughs> like 20 years ago yeah right like you're just goofing around with your friends in Fortnite, saying praise jesus like yeah it's a very different cultural thing <laughs> yeah going back to the simon saris article i realized i had uh actually read this and one of the points he makes in the article which is so great is like rationalists kind of trust their eyes a bit too much hmm. um and they're just like i mean Okay, so one of the points he makes is like the world has like mystery and in- incomprehensibility, basically. Like there's things we just don't know. And like even a rationalist would have to take a step back and like admit no one knows the answer for like what caused the Big Bang, for example. Like mm-hmm. if you believe that that's how the universe was started, it's like, well, what started that? You know, it's right. like an answer that a four year old would ask, it's a question that a four year old would ask, but it is actually a very valid question. Like, we don't know. Yeah. And a four-year-old would be like, well, what came before that? Well, what came before that? And they're actually, like, those are the right questions to be asking. Yeah. Like, a four-year-old doesn't know that you're not supposed to. It's like that that midwit, like, you know, the yeah, Valkyrie yeah. meme. It's like, right side and left side are both, we don't know. And the middle is like, no, actually. Yeah, <laughs> science says. <laughs> yeah. Uh. Yeah, so I don't know. Like kid like yeah. often kids I think are smarter about this stuff than adults and we probably get dumber in some ways as we get older. Who's the Dilbert MAGA guy again? Uh, Scott, Adams. Scott Adams. Scott Scott okay. So he has forgetting all of his politics, blah blah blah. Uh, he has a really good book called uh God's Debris. And it basically mm-hmm. is that like God exploded with the big bang and you are living in god's debris which is why you are like a piece of god and it's like it's just it's not meant to be a serious like proposition as to what religion is it's just meant to be like a it's kind of like the egg it's like a what if and it's worth reading uh i won't there's not like a single takeaway from it as there is with the egg but there are some like very nice ideas and it's short i think it's like Hmm. 30 or 40 pages Wow, did he, did he write this recently or no? It's old. Oh, it was his first book. Yeah. Oh, God, I think I actually so may have it sitting on my bookshelf. Where is it? Two thousand one. Two thousand one. Yeah, yeah. I read it a while back. I also should reread it. Um, Scott Adams. What's he up to now? <laughs> Didn't he get in trouble recently? I remember seeing his face on on X. On the trending page. <laughs> okay, can we talk about that? I do that? think it's funny that like, it still redirects to Twitter, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Wait, and I also find it funny that like 
most people will still like are still saying Twitter. I hate the name X. Yeah. I like same. I don't. I don't. None of the, hate it, right? I think I saw you tweeted about that. Maybe, maybe it was somebody else. Maybe it was the other Nat. The other, <laughs> the other Nat. Who is that? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Dude, like, I feel I'm like just having dreams about. I've cut out all other Nats. <laughs> I feel like Twitter's being weird. X is being weird. I mean, yeah, something about saying it feels wrong, right? Like, I know it doesn't feel right. It's just not really a name. X. I, I agree with the idea of a rebrand, but. Saying like, oh yeah, I went or I, I read it on X. <laughs> read it on X. It just doesn't just doesn't hit the same <laughs> way. <laughs> no. I hate it. All the other changes, I was like, I don't agree with this, but I'm like gonna keep logging on every day. X, I'm like, I cannot abide. <laughs> but done. you're still logging on every day, probably. No, I it stopped. It's like oh, yeah, I mean it's maybe every couple days. I still go on. Obviously. I will say the content the, the addiction uh, is too has, strong. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean the addiction's pretty strong, but I will I, I will say I'm spending less time on it, I think. Um and that could just be like I feel like there's always like a fight with the algorithm. Like you have to just reset every now and then. I probably need to do yeah. that. It's been a while. But it's Actually, like now it's, I'm, it's just the yeah. bird for me. That's the whole reason. The bird. If the bird was there, I'd be back. <laughs> Unfollowing everyone and then like rebuilding my following list from zero made it a lot better. I know you mentioned that. I think I need to do yeah. that. Something like, yeah. I, I was needing like to talk to you about that. There was a day where I got a Nat Elias and followed you, and I was like, huh. <laughs> <laughs> you, you said some dumb shit at the end. You did a break. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I unfollowed everyone, took a month off, and then just started refollowing people one by one. And it's made Twitter a lot better. You just. Because I think smart. there's like some emotional baggage that comes with unfollowing people, right? Where mm. you're like, oh, like I don't, you know, I feel bad. Mm. But there's probably a lot of like dumb people who slipped their way into the, the list <laughs> yeah. of people you follow, and like, yep, <laughs> a, a few of the wrong people liking stuff can mess up your feed pretty quickly. Exactly. So, yeah. Start starting over. I think really really helps. I need to go yeah, through. It's not and- even necessarily like dumb people. It's like I find it. Even if there's people lately, this is what I've been noticing that's been pissing me off. It's like, even if it's people I agree with, I'm like, you are talking about this one topic like way too much. But I think for some reason, that's how Twitter has like now become. Like, Nat, you are one of the old guard of people who actually has like a real personality on Twitter. Unfortunately, <laughs> most, most of what seems to be getting rewarded is like talk about a single topic like all the time. Yeah. You have to be and, the like, guy. You have to be that guy. The exactly. Guy. You have to be like the something the guy. guy. <laughs> and that has made Twitter suck, I think. Like yeah. that has made it less interesting because I, my interest in Twitter of following people on Twitter was like, I want to know more about this person as a, like, as a person. Like, yeah, I, I want to get like the advice sprinkled in with like the just what they're doing on the weekend and what they're reading. Yeah, like, yeah. I want to just like, yeah, I want like a real human being, right? I don't want like a something that could be written by Chat GPT. Like, you know, just because they're the guy, the certain type of guy. I feel like they're starting to punish that or something. Like, the punish the being one topic thing? The one topic thing or trying to be like a thread guy, right? Oh, yeah, the threads. That's the other thing. Yeah. It it feels like that's kind of shifted a little bit in terms of what shows up in my feed. I mean, the, the thing that I saw somebody posting about was apparently like replies are the main thing that makes a tweet do well now 
Hmm. And so if you look closely, you'll notice a lot of people are like asking questions on Twitter now. <laughs> like they're, they're not posting things. They're saying like, you know, what's a stupid way to spend money or what's the best advice you ever received or like huh. those and those kinds of prompts are like going viral because replies have a huge impact on stuff getting boosted. So it, it is just kind of funny to see how the behavior changes based on, you know, what gets incentive incentivizing the algorithm, especially now that you can get paid for it. Like yeah, that's good money. Thing. Yeah, ship hosting. I wonder how much Tucker Your made career. for the. Oh my god! <laughs> for the eighty plus million views he 80 got last plus night. Eighty plus million views on the video. That's how many good views one. there were. When I Dude. checked last night, when I went to bed, so I can only imagine what it is today. I mean, what Holy a masterclass, dude! It's two hundred million. Oh. <laughs> okay hold on how are they counting that because they only have like 250 million users <laughs> like if i went to it twice it's all that, of them is that two views yeah i mean i've looked at it like four times now right so does that count as four probably also the video um, wasn't loading so i had to reopen that tweet like 10 times so maybe <laughs> good lord Six hundred twenty-two thousand likes fifty thousand replies i mean <laughs> That's why it's doing so well. It's because of the replies. Because <laughs> of the replies. Because <laughs> of the replies. <laughs> 200 million. I mean, there's no way that more than like... How many people do you think actually watched the, the loser debates? <laughs> I, have no, I have no sense. For, uh, <laughs> I was like, what's that? <laughs> yeah, the... That when people watch the rounding errors. <laughs> that's like, how uh that's how Trump should brand it too. Treading like, water in the kiddie pool. <laughs> <laughs> the top tweet in my uh in my for you algorithm right now, some guy I don't follow named Aristophanes. I just kinda wish Vivek was white. <laughs> <laughs> like what the hell? Like what? First of all, it's an account. That- that guy is funny. Have a lot of replies. He Must has have some a lot good of tweets. <laughs> oh, you know this account? Oh yeah. Okay. He's, he's entertaining. <laughs> For the record, I don't follow this guy. It's probably because I do. Mine is. I, I I saw that tweet and I thought it was funny, but I didn't like it. <laughs> oh, mine is actually good. Mine is from Miles Miles Snyder. It's I almost always buy unsalted butter. It's That's that the kind tweet. of stuff I really want. That's a good tweet, mm-hmm. actually. Yeah. My I'll next just, one is Ryan Culp push-up competition after steak dinner <laughs> last night. <laughs> These are actually all right because I follow them. But it's in my for you. So it's actually yeah. not terrible. Maybe they heard me making fun of Twitter and they're like, we got to get this under control. I was seeing a lot of trash like Adil was. This type of uh, this type of tweet that's like somebody I don't follow. Some type of content. I'm like, why would I ever engage with this? <laughs> Even some of the people that you agree with, you're like, I would never hit like on this tweet. Like, even if it's a good opinion. (laughs) (laughs) Or if it's funny. Like, I appreciate shit posts, but it's sometimes you don't want to hit like on some of the shit posts, even if they're good shit posts. (laughs) You guys see the Chamath shit posts yesterday? What did he The man in the arena. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, I saw other people's, like, derivatives of that. Like... I didn't know that's where it came from. It's so good. It, <laughs> it's incredible. You just you just got to follow that thread back, Neil. It, I'm going to it right now. Wait, I didn't Unreal. realize he was shitposting. I, I thought he was getting made fun of. I think, no, he was, I think Shamath was serious. Everybody else was making fun okay. of him. Okay, okay. Because it was kind of yeah. a ridiculous thing to say. 
Yeah, I'm in the arena trying stuff. Because there's two things. So Neil, it's like he's talking to a guy who is not an Anon. His like first name, last name, face, and birthday are on his birth year, are, are on his profile. And he like has a legitimate critique of Chamath, and Chamath is like, fuck you, Anon. I'm in the arena. And it's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Every statement here is in false. Uh, oh, man. Yeah, actually, that's one thing reading the right stuff that just makes you realize. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm bringing up this book like five times. No, it's but good. It's, it's like, good. It, because one of the sections of the book is the engineers versus the pilots. And like mm. the engineers thinking they're hot shit and like it's all about the computers and all about the technology. And the pilots being like, no, fuck you. I'm the one flying at Mach 3 and like going in a rocket into space and like doing all the actual dangerous stuff. And it's actually kind of funny because I think like over the past decade, like at least the past decade, people in tech, including us, have probably like overestimated how important what we do is. Oh, like, yeah. It, we're not actually in the arena in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> like, well, have you guys been seeing have you guys been seeing those tweets that are like we're we're in the we're in the hardware renaissance of like going to space, building space factories and like all this shit and you're still building SAS? Yeah. <laughs> it is pretty amazing because what this week the Russian probe failed to land on the moon. The Indian probe landed on the moon. And yeah. now there's like four countries on the moon or something. Uh, yeah, China, India, Russia. That's uh, pretty cool. Yeah. It's cool. I mean, yeah. last week I rode in a self-driving Waymo. I've been talking to ChatGPT this whole pod. And yeah. there's like robots on the moon. I'm like, oh, I'm pretty grateful that I, I get to live in this timeline. I imagine people will look back and be like, I can't believe he was grateful that he got to live in that timeline. But so far, <laughs> <laughs> so far, so good. I, uh, I kind of had this thought that like we often talk about how it was like so disappointing after the space race that we never went back and like kind of just abandoned space stuff for 50 years. And I feel like there's also kind of a counter argument that it was actually just like incredibly stupid that we tried to do it at that time. And it makes way more sense that the space stuff is happening now hmm. because it's like that, the idea that you would pilot these ships going Mach three, four, five, whatever, and so, then try to like thread the needle to land. So they know. didn't pilot them, which is actually something I didn't know. Oh, uh, really? It was oh, actually okay. automated, which is kind of insane. Huh. Oh, okay. Well, so the the I'll section of the then. book I'm on right now, <laughs> the section of the book I'm on right now is basically the engineers are complaining to the Air Force and to the U.S. government that the pilot, the uh, the astronauts think too highly of themselves. Because they're like, we, they're literally just there for biomedical research to see how a human body reacts in space. Wow. They're like, we could just throw a monkey up there. Like, we don't need an Air Force pilot. Is and that the true, Air Force though? pilots are like, uh, in the Mercury rockets, needed- seen, the Mercury rockets, they basically needed to, like, one of the parts of the study, which is kind of fucked up, but the pilots knew what they were signing up for, mm-hmm. is um, they want to see, like, how a human, human being reacts psychologically. Hmm. To being the, there, at least for the Apollo, I thought that they had to do a decent amount of maneuvering. Like they have to take the lander and like rotate it. And yeah. I haven't gotten to those yet. So the part I'm on is like humans have not gotten into space yet. Okay, like we there have been like satellites and rockets and things like that, but there's not been a manned space flight hmm. um, at this point. And and basically, like the pilots don't actually do much of anything. There's like a way for them to eject and abort the mission. Hmm. And there's communication they can do 
and there is like a couple little thruster things they can do once they're in in or or like not in orbit but in uh, zero gravity where they can um, like turn the capsule that they're in but there's not really much else that they do like everything else is automated but Nat to your point it's kind of one it was probably not easy to automate that with the computing yeah. power that they had yeah. <laughs> like how is that how did that even work but yeah maybe that was the limiting factor yeah it, it does seem like the the idea that we were trying to do stuff in space before we had self landing rockets and you know these really advanced like computing systems does seem kind of insane on the other hand there is a lot of good sci-fi with like very low tech societies doing stuff in space just using basic newtonian mechanics and like that's kind of compelling too right because like you definitely could i'm gonna be way out of my depth with what i'm about to say but it's something that i have a superficial understanding of is like it's like boeing planes are significantly less automated than airbuses is my understanding and uh, I remember this was during like the 737 Max craze where everybody read a little bit about these planes. So I, I did a little bit of dabbling. <laughs> but the, the you were an expert for a day. Well, no, I'm Twitter. still an expert, Neil. But uh, <laughs> I read like I've four blogger threads. <laughs> uh, but the thing that I remember from that was that the it actually takes like a bit more skill as a pilot. Uh, in emergency situations, if you're piloting a Boeing plane. And I, I wonder if like a similar thing is true for the space flight side as well. It's like you'd like literally land the space shuttle. I don't know how much of that was automated. Maybe it was highly automated, but there's something cool about aesthetically uh, cool about that. No, I would, I would yeah. imagine that like the, the Mercury ones were literally just, let's get a rocket up, Yeah, you know, be in space so we have the first manned space flight and that it's also amazing how much of that was just the motivation it was just like well they got the first satellite so we got to get the first man and like yeah it yeah. was like just a race like truly like a race because yeah. they were convinced that whoever like mastered space first would just annihilate the other one with nukes hmm that was like the thought oh, yeah like wow. it was viewed as like a true existential threat. They also talk a lot about, I don't want to spoil the whole book, but they also talk a lot about the role of the media in all of this hmm. and how like, yeah, anyway, I'll, okay. we'll save that part for the episode. Yeah, just don't tell us how it ends because <laughs> <laughs> did they make what? it to the moon or not? <laughs> well, do they, do they talk about setting up the stage where they can record? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't gotten to that part yet. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's upstaged by the uh, pyrotechnics in the film crew. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, man. Well, on, um, on that note. <laughs> yeah. That <laughs> we note. Next book, the right stuff. Great wreck, good deal. But we got to do more. Like, these, like, adventurer, explorer books are just they're Great awesome. topic. I bought that uh, Rendon book that you were texting Ooh. us about, by the way. Ooh curious to read that we could we could add that one to the list that could be interesting because he seemed he seemed cool could be a good follow-up yeah i'd be open to it yeah i like these micro histories that Mm. that salt book that i read was phenomenal Ooh, it's really interesting do you have an episode on that yet or yeah yeah i have a nats notes on it nice salt to world history fascinating book we could do one of his other books he has one on cod like the fish oh really (laughs) 
Yeah. I was so like, confused. I, was not sure, I wasn't sure if you were talking about the fish or the video game. The video game. Yeah. yeah. No, like, dude, I didn't realize this. Like, histories. For, for, for a decent chunk of history, COD was one of the like most sought after and fought over resources in the world. Wow. wow. Yeah, because it was such a... Like if you if you had access to good cod fisheries, you could harvest so much of it, and then you could salt it, and it would stay good for a year. And that's what you could like feed all of your ships and your slaves and your armies and everything with. And so it basically determined your ability to expand your empire. Oh, interesting, dude. And that makes sense. Um, speaking of cod, my cons- I know we got to go in a minute, but <laughs> my conspiracy theory of the day is that. Something has changed in the definition of wild Alaskan salmon because mm. Whole Foods has been selling it. It was on sale for like oh. the whole last month and it was Whole like Foods $12 a pound. Yeah, and it was like $12 a pound. I'm like, and it doesn't say previously frozen. So I'm just like, how are you getting this wild Alaskan salmon to New York fresh? Number one, $12 yeah. a pound is ridiculously cheap. How? How? Um, yeah, so I don't know. My theory is like, there's probably like some kind of like ocean fishery that like a a ocean based farm or something Hmm. that's made the cost go down. I I don't know. Like, I don't know how they're affording to do that. Cause if you go to a legit place selling wild Alaskan salmon, it's like like 25 bucks minimum. Yeah, exactly. Did did you guys watch, uh, super size me too about the chicken farming industry? No, He, he has this really funny thing where he's like, the all you have to do to, say that your chickens are like free range, like pasture raised is have a like one square foot box outside of the coop. Yeah. (laughs) And as long as they can like walk into that, then that counts as them like being pasture raised or something. Right. So (laughs) maybe, maybe these salmon, like they, they're wild. They they farm, they farm them and then they release them into a river and they go down the river and then they catch them again. It's like, ah, they're wild. God. Yup. Yeah, exactly. It's something like that. It's got to be something like that. <laughs> well, that was uh, uh, one of the things in What Your Food Ate, remember? Where it's like mm, two yeah, or the three times the omega-3 yeah. uh, ratio for fresh salmon. versus wild. Yeah. yeah. If, I'll, I'll, I'm not affiliated with this company at all, but plug for uh, Thunder's Catch is a oh, direct-to-consumer, wild-caught Alaskan salmon company, and they just ship you a frozen box of, like, 25 pounds of fillets. Wow. And it's incredible. It's so good. I mean, I had always read if you don't live on the West Coast, it needs to be frozen. Like, it needs... Yeah, otherwise and there's nothing be, wrong yeah. with freezing it. No, <laughs> like, yeah. I always think it's funny when places advertise never frozen, right? Like, freezing is fine. You lose some of the microbiome benefits, maybe. Oh, wow. If you buy this in bulk, it's actually pretty good priced. Yeah, it's, it's pretty reasonably priced. Yeah. And so we just this buy 25 awesome. pound boxes and keep them in our freezer. And, and yeah, I mean, it's sushi grade. So we, we yeah. eat it raw all the time and make like poke bowls and stuff. It's delicious. That's awesome. That is awesome. Yeah. yeah this looks really good. Too bad we're not affiliated with them. We should be. I know. <laughs> I, I've recommended them to so many people. I feel like I should have some kind of deal with them. They're, it's great. And it's just like a couple who lives in Idaho that owns a boat in Alaska and they just go fish all season, put it all on ice, sell it until they run out, and then just chill the rest of the year. So that's awesome. cool business. Yeah. Yeah. There's like, I mean, last thing on this, like there's so many ways to play with the definitions. Like even in what your food ate, they were talking about the organic stuff that's grown hydroponically, like without yeah, soil. Yeah. It's got like um, no nutrients in it. <laughs> yeah. But it doesn't use like the, it doesn't use the fertilizers or the pesticides so they can use the organic label. 
Yeah. But what you miss is like, it doesn't have any of the soil derived nutrients either. (laughs) But it's called, like, they would both be called organic. And it's kind of, yeah, crazy how much you can just play with labels. Uh, But yeah, anyway, that's my conspiracy theory of the day is the salmon definition has changed, I think. Or somebody figured out a way around it. Like Whole Foods has just come up with a way. Like I like Nat's idea. It's farmed and then released into a river. (laughs) Released into a river and then re-caught. Yeah. (laughs) I actually should look at the label more closely. Like maybe it says wild caught. It doesn't say wild. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good question. Like what if it's just wild caught? There could be a yeah, yeah. (laughs) Like there could be a loophole there. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Should we do it anyway? Yep. Uh, See you guys next time for the right stuff. Yes. If you enjoyed this, send it to a friend, leave us a review, say hi on the Twitters. If you know the answer to any of our questions, hit us up. Exactly. Sweet. And we'll see see you next time. time.